BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hello and welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Lisa Pressman and I'm here with Emily Oster. Professor Emily Oster is an economist and best-selling author and she's been on the podcast before this time I'm having her on the podcast because she's one of the only researchers looking at what's happening with health outcomes for kids going back to school, vaccines, and um, really looking at it as a health economist. So with all of the information, misinformation that's out there, she's clarifying what we know from data, from her data and other data about going back to schools, transmission rates, vaccines, vaccine accessibility, what next fall might look like, all in the context of, of course, uncertainty, but with a real head for science. So I really appreciate it. She is a TED talker. She is the author of two books, Expecting Better and Crib Sheet that discuss a data-driven approach to decision-making in pregnancy and parenting. And now that data-driven approach has become a really important voice in making choices related to this pandemic. She's been one of the strongest advocates of opening schools during this epidemic. She spearheaded a project to collect data on the spread of COVID-19 in schools. And I really enjoy hearing from Emily because it feels like a real voice of reason with all of the influence of a mom who just really wants to make good decisions, the best decisions possible. That is very comforting. And so I asked her on today because we've got this top of mind for a lot of us. If you enjoy this episode, please don't hesitate to subscribe rate and write a little review. And of course, follow me on at Raising Good Humans podcast. I hope you have a wonderful week. So the two things that I just feel like everybody can benefit from, I mean, there are many things they can benefit from um, in hearing from you, but the two things that I really wanted to um, hear from you on are the research that you've done on kids and school and going back to school, because a lot of people are, some people do not have this option. And then I really want this to be more of a, um, I mean, I don't know why there hasn't been a, a letter written by every childhood expert just saying like, come on, this is not okay for kids. But 
there are some people that are kind of making the decision right now and some schools are opening up and some have completely opened up. And I know you've paid tremendously close attention to how that looks. So I kind of want to start out of the gate with that and then get into a little bit about vaccines, because I think while we're sitting here with someone who is looking at evidence, it's an enormous service. And I really want people to listen to you because there's so many, first of all, it's really hard to form an opinion and forming one is so courageous when you're looking at data and you can't wait for 10 more years to make a decision. And I'm so used to a field, the developmental sciences, usually, you know, we, we're taught not to take one study or two studies and have an opinion yet because you need to replicate things and you need to look very closely and years have to go by and we just don't have that luxury. Um, and I've just been searching for someone who's reasonably looked at things and I'm just so thrilled that you have. So I would love to hear from you first on schools, then on vaccines, and then anything else that feels like a public health service that people that you wish people knew, especially, I mean, our focus is parents and caregivers, but what they knew as they're making decisions right now, just right. those questions, just those small questions. Yeah. Right. So, so schools, what, tell me everything you think. <laughs> okay. So, um, you know, I think that is, um, we sort of think about the question of, of schools. I think the big you know, the, the big questions are, you know, should they, should they be open and, and how, like in what, you know, with what mitigation and, you know, if we sort of step back in this debate and think about the questions that we had, you know, last summer uh, when schools had been closed and then some of them were thinking about opening, there was a lot more uncertainty about whether it was possible to do that safely. And I, I think there was a, you know, there were moments in the summer when say Georgia opened all its high schools. And I think many of us, sort of took a collective breath and said, oh my goodness, like, what are we going to, you know, what are we going to see? Are we going to see thousands of cases coming out of these schools with their crowded hallways? But, you know, as the fall evolved, it became clear that schools, in fact, are a fairly low risk environment, kind of in some ways, sort of amazingly, we didn't see big outbreaks in, even in those high schools that opened and opened with, you know, somewhat more limited mitigation. And certainly, as we saw more and more schools open and as people dug into the data, we started to see, you know, not just that we weren't seeing big outbreaks, but that actually we weren't seeing much in the way of transmission at all. So, you know, one example is this, there's a study of um, where they followed like 90,000 kids and teachers in in in-person school in, in North Carolina, and they saw, you know, over kind of a nine week period, despite the fact that there were almost 800 sort of community acquired cases, there were only 32 cases that were spread in schools. That kind of translates to a very, very low, what we call an attack rate. So very, very low attack rate in uh, in schools. And it was almost entirely um, between staff or between individual students. In fact, there were no cases of student to staff transmission in that sample. And we're seeing, you know, it, like kind of every day new data now is sort of coming out that I would say is, is reassuring. So like yesterday, New York City released the fact that they, they had quarantined 36, over the sort of force of the fall, they quarantined 36,000 students and staff um, after virus exposure at school. And ultimately, uh, 191 of those, uh, 191 of those 36,000 tested positive. Now, just to be clear, it's not obvious that all 191 of those acquired COVID at at school, but even if they did, that rate is so low, 
Wow. So, I mean, I guess this is sort of like a long-winded way of saying that I, I think that we have uh, we have seen that schools can be operated safely, that it is, you know, it's possible to, to do that. And yet we're still seeing that in a lot of places, schools are not open or are not open fully in person. I think that the challenge is sort of how do we translate from this kind of low-risk conclusion into into actually getting places open in a way that that all the stakeholders are comfortable with. Is it the stakeholders? Like right now, would you say that the efforts should be toward making the stakeholders, like teachers feel, or as parents, like who, who do you feel like at this point are keeping the schools closed in the areas, in the, in the places they're closed? I mean, with the caveat that, for example, I'm in Los Angeles and the public school system the superintendent is saying the schools can open. The mayor is saying the schools can open in small parts, but they don't have the resources to open in a way that feels safe to the stakeholders. So I'm just curious. I mean, this speaks to obviously a larger, bigger issue that has that the pandemic just shed light on. But most things the schools are underfunded for. So how does this one get? Where do you see this going? Uh, I think that that you know it's gonna it's gonna take probably vaccinations of teachers and then an additional push to to be clear that you know we need to um, we need to open and, and sort of figure out what it's what it's going to take to make you know teachers feel safe, acknowledging that you know it is possible to do this safely and certainly post vaccine it should be no um, you know there shouldn't be significant concerns there. I think then to sort of get parents encouraged to to enter. That's in some ways a harder a harder problem, and I think particularly we've seen a lot of reasonable concerns among communities that have been more heavily affected by the virus. Mm-hmm. And there, I think there's a real information um, an information gap. I think you know in some cases, some of these surveys, parents' perceptions about the risks to their children are far, 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 far higher than the actual risks. And trying to sort of get that information out there, I think will be will be important. I also believe that as schools open and people see them operating safely in their local environment, that will make it easier to make the next steps. So just having some schools open successfully is going to move this needle further along. I mean, I think that's, I think that's right. And probably because I think that's very consistent with what we saw in the fall. You know, there were places that opened in the fall, including places, you know, like where I live. So in, you know, in Rhode Island, like basically most of the school districts opened pretty close to normally uh, in, in the fall. And then what that meant is even when we had very high case rates later in the fall, and even when sort of the cases were really, um, you know, we were one of the worst states, and I think that had nothing to do with the schools and had to do with other things. Um, but even then, people were already comfortable with the schools and they already saw that school was not a high risk environment. And so the schools basically stayed open other than a few weeks of sort of dealing with some staffing issues. Um, and, and so I think that that kind of just lived experience made people much more confident. And, you know, we see in like in the, in the Providence Public School District, which is not a rich school district, it serves a large community, large share of the students are students of color. We're seeing, you know, 70% of the black students coming back uh, Black and Latinx students coming back to, to school, which is way higher than some of the opt-in rates we've seen in other places. So I think there is a real kind of like, if you can just get it going, then it will then it will grow. And are you looking at any outcomes for kids in terms of, I mean, I guess this is just too, <laughs> this is too much to take on probably, but how it looks for their 
fears or anxiety? Like what do they want to be back in school? Are they, um, are you surveying kids? We're not surveying kids. And I actually haven't seen much. I mean, I've seen, you know, I've seen a lot of things on, on kind of learning outcomes for kids, which are poor on mental health outcomes for kids, which are concerning. Um, so there's a lot of, you know, pieces in there where definitely things look like, you know, maybe they're not going awesome. Um, but I, you know, I haven't seen a lot of kind of just asking kids how they, how they feel about this, at least not in a data, in a data way, you know, my guess is that kids echo their, their parents, right? So if you're, you know, if you're afraid and you convey that to your, to your kid, then they're going to be afraid. Um, and you know, that's part of the challenge is to, is to, I think, work work with the parents. So I think we do know that it's not going to be great for kids. I care so much less about learning outcomes on the one hand, on the other hand, that's so inextricably linked with mental health and economic health and all of those things. So, and I haven't seen outcomes that look particularly soothing. So I don't know if you, yeah. I don't know if you, yeah, have no, there's, on it's, that. Not, it's not very soothing. I would say, I mean, I, you know, in some ways the, the, the sort of post-vaccine world challenge is not like the challenge is not over. Right. I mean, it's, it's, you know, for one thing, kids are not going to be vaccinated for a while. There's absolutely no reason that that should be a barrier to return to school, given how low risk children are for this virus. Um, but I can see that it may be. And we're, you know, we're seeing some fears persisting among teachers, even once they are, they are vaccinated. Um, and, you know, I guess for me, I'm just looking to the, in some ways, looking to the fall and trying to say, you know, how can we open, how can we make investments now that will let us open kind of normally in the fall to have like a regular school year next year. And I'm, I'm there. I still have concerns about whether that will be possible, even in a world in which all that all adults are vaccinated by the end of May. Uh, so I think that's, that is on my mind, you know, particularly in areas that have been more resistant to open. I mean, you want to remember, like there are a lot of places in the U S where schools have been basically operating more or less normally for an entire year. Uh, and then places where they haven't been open open at all. You know, they're in Florida, these kids have been in school five days a week in person since September or August. And then, you know, your kids are, are not me or in California. Your kids are, many kids are not back at all. And they probably won't be this, this school year. Yeah. I have a question about going back in the fall and what, what is perceived as, you know, as normal of a school year, normal in quotes uh, as possible. Do you see a world where in places where we haven't opened up, kids are going to school unmasked next year? Or do you feel like that's something to just come to terms with, that kids are probably going to be masked in the coming school year? You know, I'm not, I, I'm not sure. Actually, I was just writing about that today and thinking about it. I am, in some ways, from a policy standpoint, you know, far more focused on making sure we have a five-day-a-week in-person option for all grades in, in the fall and that we are, are able to manage the fact that some parents are still going to want their kids to be remote without compromising education for either group. I think one of the big things we've learned is that this kind of hybrid teaching model is extremely difficult for everybody. Uh, and so I think we're going to need to start investing in, you know, how are we going to basically create some virtual academy option if parents still want their kids to be to be remote so we can kind of have regular school without having to sort of have kids on Zoom and in person at the same time. So that's like a big, that's like, for me, that's a big focus for various reasons. In terms of masks, I mean, you know, I, I hear from people, and I don't disagree with this, that once all the adults and high-risk adults are vaccinated, it isn't actually obvious why 
we would need kids to wear masks. I mean, this is a much lower risk uh, disease than a lot of the other things for which we don't have them wear masks. Right. Right. I mean, like the flu. No, I think about that a lot. Right. Like it's the same kind of issue with schools not having funding to operate in a way that feels ready to be opened. And so if you look at other much more high risk things, they, it is under, they're so underserved to begin with, and we don't seem to mind. So I, this goes into that same category as far as I'm concerned. The- yeah, I just don't think, I, I'm not sure that um, that the, the kind of political will will be there to eliminate masks prior to kids' vaccination, right. um, just because they don't seem to care that much. You know, like my kids wear masks, that means whatever, it's fine. It's, it's so incredible. I totally agree. Cause I was like, how could they even get through their day? I mean, when this first started, I was just thinking like for the kids who have attention challenges or learning differences and just even, you know, for myself in general, I get so, I mean, obviously I wear masks all the time and I'm meticulous about it. And I care very much that people respect taking care of others and wearing masks. At the same time, I was like, oh God, how can they learn all day? But they're so much more adaptable to it. So you're right. They probably won't care. They don't care. And I think that's like the sort of, you know, I think that's going to be the issue that like, if it were something that was very disruptive to kids, and then I think we would be in a different place. But, you know, at at the moment, I, most kids seem to be adapting, seem to have adapted pretty, pretty well. But honestly, I think some of this will depend on how the summer goes. Like if things are looking really good in the summer and the and the rates are really low and everyone's getting vaccinated, we're starting to vaccinate older kids. I can see schools kind of dialing it, dialing it down, but I don't know. But you would say in general, for those who are hesitant to send their kids to school, if it's an option, you you feel comfortable with what the science tells us about how they'll do in school. Definitely. I mean, I think that, you know, the the science is both very convincing on the safety of school in terms of uh, in terms of kids safety. I mean, and staff safety, but, you know, kids just in general are so low or so low risk. And the idea that, you know, some people have said, well, I don't know, you know, I don't really know if my kid can handle kind of being masked and being like, it's going to be fine. Your kid will be fine. And it's so it's such a refreshing statement to just have the confidence, just say it like you've looked enough at what is, has been happening that you can say this comfortably. Um, yeah. I mean, I think the other thing I would say, and I think is, is definitely worth having people having in their mind, like no matter how confident you are, no matter how much time you spend with data, the first time you drop your kid at school after one year of having them in your house, you are going to be afraid and you are going to be uncomfortable. I mean, at least briefly for most of us, right? I mean, you know, we did this back in September and I remember the first day in some ways being like, oh, this is so, like, this is so great. Like my kid, you know, I'm like, my kid is at school. They seem so happy. But there is that moment of like, this is kind of weird. Like they're wearing a mask. I'm dropping in this weird tent. Like, you know, like what, like what is going to, what is going to happen? I can't go inside. I can't see stuff. And so I think people may expect that experience. People may feel like I shouldn't, be willing to do that experience until I feel totally comfortable doing it. And I think there's a piece of us which has to acknowledge, like, actually, that's probably not realistic. You are likely to need to do this, even though the first moments are going to be uncomfortable. But that doesn't necessarily mean they're wrong, uh, that it's the wrong choice. It's just something that we sort of need to acknowledge and, and work through. And, you know, by day three, you will not be sad. If you're looking to revitalize your joints, skin, and hair, do it with clinically studied ingredients. 
and use the code HUMANS for 20% off at store.draxe.com because this is Ancient Nutrition. And at Ancient Nutrition, they have one goal, to transform the health of every individual on the planet. That drives them to create whole food nutritional products made with real ingredients for real results that you can see and feel. And every product they create is rooted in tradition and supported by science. Ancient Nutrition is based in traditional Chinese herbalism and Ayurveda, which are ways of eating and thinking that have survived generations. In Ancient Nutrition, they believe that nutrition isn't just about eating the right foods. It's about ingredients that bodies can truly use. So they source the world's highest quality ingredients and rigorously test them for pesticides, herbicides, and heavy metals. And they create products that our bodies can easily digest and absorb. Every one of those products has a purpose. So my favorite is the multi-collagen protein. Multi-collagen protein can help revitalize your joints, skin, and hair and reduce joint discomfort as early as the first day. And it can help smooth some lines after four weeks of use and improve skin tone after eight weeks of use. It's made with clinically studied ingredients, including five types of collagen. And the best part is that you can easily stir a scoop into your morning coffee. There is no flavor and it just dissolves. So it's just this fantastic addition to your skin, hair, and joints, and you don't even notice. So go to ancientnutrition.com and use the code HUMANS for 20% off your first Ancient Nutrition purchase. Strike Club was founded by four women with 11 children between them. And they noticed that their girls' bathrooms were overflowing with personal care products while their boys could barely be bothered with a basic bar of soap. So they asked, have these boys ever washed their faces? And they embarked on a mission to help guys feel more confident and engage in self-care with simple and effective skin and acne care products. And that is how Strike Club was born. Strike Club is effective Strike Club products are formulated, tested, and approved by the co-founder who's a dermatologist. The product line is infused with unique ingredients that kill bacteria that causes acne and none of the dryness and irritation. And Strike Club is safe. It's formulated without parabens, sulfates, phthalates, and the formulas are cruelty-free because safety is non-negotiable for these moms. Strike Club has also been verified by the Environmental Working Group. Most boys don't want an elaborate grooming routine, and that is why they build products that fit their lifestyle. Fast, multitasking, discreet, and unfussy. Also, it's just less embarrassing. With sense or no sense, the packaging and branding is designed for guys, and so it makes skincare less embarrassing. Strike Club is available at Target stores and Target online and at strikeclub.com. If you go to strikeclub.com right now, S-T-R-Y-K-E-C-L-U-B.com and enter the code GOOD at checkout, you'll receive 15% off your purchase. That's strike with a Y, strikeclub.com, code GOOD for 15% off. Remember, it's strike with a Y, strike club because guys have skin too. Jane.com is a boutique marketplace featuring the latest in women's fashion, trends, accessories, home decor, children's clothing, toys, and more. Jane.com features hundreds of new products every day, offering you everything you need 
to live your best, most stylish life. So every day is a sale at jane.com. They offer a wide variety of categories and styles. So you can find something for everyone and everything in your life, even your dog or cat. Over 400 new products drop daily. Everything from apparel for the whole family, home decor, toys, novelty items, kind of you name it. And if you love a good deal or you like to seize savings, definitely go to jane.com. Jane.com products only last for a limited time. So it's kind of fun. See what you can catch. And by shopping at jane.com, you support small businesses. They offer products and name brands from over 2,000 shops at great prices. So find your next discovery at jane.com slash humans. Hey guys, I'm Whitney Port and this is With Wit. A lot of you may know me from reality TV and the reality is a lot's happened since the hills. With Wit is dedicated to having real, raw, and occasionally ridiculous conversations with the people who have had a profound impact on me. Because on With Wit, very little is off limits. Subscribe so you don't miss any of the amazing conversations to come. New episodes of With Wit are available every Tuesday on all platforms. Are people concerned about variants or like, are they going to have to quarantine if they you know, if they're planning summer and everybody's, the adults are vaccinated, but the kids aren't vaccinated, you know, before you come back, are you, are people going to have to think about quarantining or variants making them nervous? Any, any thoughts on that? You know, I think that variants are in the kind of the, like the kind of what if part of, of this discussion, which is constantly occurring where people are like, what if this, what if this, what if this, you know, there's a lot of what ifs. Yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, we are like, yeah, I guess what if, what if on the variant, on the other hand, we have to kind of deal with the public health situation we have at the moment. Um, and that looks pretty good. Uh, and we are vaccinating really fast. And I think that that's, that's kind of all sort of working in our favor. So now to vaccine questions. One question that comes up, adults are all, and I know the CDC guidelines came out, you know, if two adults are vaccinated, they can be unmasked inside. But if kids are there having a play date, the kids should be masked. Is that consistent with what you've been looking at? And I can never tell. I don't even know if I've interpreted that correctly because I just looked at it yesterday. I had a very difficult time with understanding exactly how they're coming down on that. I'm so glad you said that because I really did too. But it makes it's very confusing. I mean, they're, they're like, they're very confusing. And I also, you know, I think that the issue, you know, the issue with kids is just, this is just a very low risk situation for kids. And so once all the adults are vaccinated, which is going to, of course, lower our transmission a lot and lower the rates a lot and, and, you know, eliminate the people who basically get seriously ill, we're then in a situation where kind of it's it's just the kids and we're talking about something which is much lower risk for them than a ton of other things that you were not thinking about before. So, you know, in a sense, I think we are going to need to get, my view is we are going to need to get comfortable with the idea of, you know, thinking of kids as basically vaccinated before they are, because from the standpoint of like, what do you, what is your goal of the vaccine? Really? What's our goal of the vaccine? It's to kind of make sure people don't get serious. Right. Right. And they're already vaccinated. They already have that. 
Like they're not right. getting seriously ill. They're not, I mean, that's, that's, they already are vaccinated from the standpoint of the goal of the vaccine. And we just have to get comfortable with that. That's a really, really great point. And the percentage who might have that horrible response is a lower percentage than almost every other, like you said, the flu is statistically more dangerous for that population, for kids. For kids, absolutely. I mean, you know, for, if you sort of think about what was the value for kids health-wise in all of this masking and, and distancing and all the stuff we did, this year, the place we have seen health benefits, we've seen a lot of health costs. The place we've seen health benefits is the flu. Nobody got the flu. I mean, I don't know if you've, like, there's one, there's been one pediatric flu death this year. Yeah, it's it's actually remarkable. And, and maybe, remarkable. That is, maybe that is a good frame for families who are struggling to get less anxious. I mean, not that you can use reason. Not everybody responds to reason and statistics to alleviate anxiety, but it does help a lot of people just having the information. And then you have to deal with what happens to your nervous system that no statistic can help you with. And I totally understand that, but it is a great way to frame it and understand it. Just that, that that's been this huge reduction in loss of, or gain in uh, life for kids. It's just that the expense has been too great. So it's not yeah. And I mean, I think if you said basically what it's going to, I think, I mean, one way that you could think about framing that is to say to people like, you know, if we did this every winter, if every winter we like remote school kids and had them wear masks and didn't have them see their friends and didn't do stuff and didn't travel. If you did that, we would save, you know, 200 child lives a year from the flu. I still think we probably wouldn't make that choice because of the losses, even just to kids forget about the sort of broader losses. And yet that somehow we're, we're sort of, we feel like we're making that choice differently here, even though the actual gain to the kids is far, far less than it would be, you know, for the flu. Right. And it's, it's just that it's uncertainty for some reason, the combination of uncertainty, not for some reason, I mean, uncertainty is just like a pathway to anxiety, but everybody's learning to get a little larger window of tolerance for uncertainty. So there was one other thing that I wanted to ask you about. I mean, I'm so curious what you have to say about the differences across the vaccines. And I'm so curious what you have to say about where you think vaccines stand for kids. And those are such vastly different questions, but they're still under the bucket of vaccines. So I'm so curious what you have to say and what you found, what your findings are. So, you know, I think I wrote about the differences across vaccines because I feel like the messaging here has been a, like a little frustrating for me because people are sort of like, there's like like two things. It's like the Johnson and Johnson has, there's a number that's quoted. People don't really know what the number, the the number is quoted as 72. And then there's this number quoted with the Pfizer and Moderna, which is like 95. And those numbers don't seem that similar. Um, One of them seems lower. It's not really clear what they mean. And then simultaneously people are told all these vaccines are great. Get whichever one is available to you. Like the best vaccine for you is the one that's available to you. That one, right. Is that one. Okay. But like, you know, in some ways, this is coming from people who I noticed got the vaccine with the 95 on it for the most part, right? Yeah. And so I think there is a little bit of a of a danger if we kind of don't dig into explaining to people, well, are you saying that 72 and 95 are the same number? Or like, am I missing, are they measuring different things? 
like, you know, or you're just saying like, because it's for people who are like not as important, they can just get whatever. So I think that messaging has been really poor. I think the truth is that those numbers are not that comparable. They're not that easy to compare. So this sort of 72 number for the Johnson and Johnson, which is something like, you know, what basically the efficacy against serious illness, the reduction in the risk of serious illness as a result of, or actually symptomatic illness as a result of vaccination um, versus, versus 95 for the Pfizer and Moderna. You know, the Johnson and Johnson was tested in, in an environment that was slightly more challenging because of the presence of, of variants. So probably that number, those numbers are probably closer if they were tested in a kind of head-to-head trial. But both of the numbers are really big, are really large. You know, a sort of typical flu vaccine, not to like harp on the flu, but a typical flu vaccine has efficacy probably under 50%. Mm-hmm. So these are both just like very effective vaccines. And the advantage of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is that it is a single dose. And that that's, you know, that's much easier to do. We're going to be able to give it to more people. If everyone had that vaccine, we would be in a totally different vaccine environment, like disease environment than we are now. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think, but, but on the other hand, I, you know, I think it probably is true that the, that the Pfizer and Moderna are slightly more effective at, you know, preventing like sort of illness that is not fatal, but is, is somewhat more serious, right? So they're basically both these vaccines are more or less hundred percent against kind of death which is really good, right? Uh, but they kind of differ a little bit in sort of these like lesser outcomes. So I don't know, that's kind of where I am on those. Yeah, because we, we want obviously to avoid death, but on a lot of people's minds are, well, what about all those like ongoing problems where it feels like now you have a chronic illness? Well, and COVID is another topic, but yeah, I think we definitely, people don't want to be, people don't want to be sick. On the other hand, there is a lot of value to a 72%, even if it were just 72, like there's a lot of value to 72% reduction in these things. Um, yeah. and, and I think the other point I made when I was writing about this recently, that I think people kind of hadn't really thought through is like, this is not your last vaccine. Like you are getting a booster, some kind of other booster for this to address variants, to address, like this is, this is not your last shot. And so, you know, basically the value of getting as many people vaccinated with something as soon as possible is a kind of return to societal normalcy. And if you're worried that like later, what about the variable? You're going to get another one. You get another chance at this. So that's a good point, right? Everybody's going to get more and and there's on rollout. So the controversial conversation right now, and maybe this is just, I don't even know if this is the controversial conversation, but this is what I'm hearing a lot is access to vaccines before your group because there were extras or because you knew someone or because some states are being a little more. I know when I compare my friends in New York City to California, it's just being done in a very different way. There's, you know, there aren't, there isn't as much paperwork because in New York, it's been like, let's get as many people vaccinated. And if we ask for paperwork, it might discourage people from coming. In California, it's been quite a bit different. Um, but I'm curious because I know some people said they, you know, they had the option to get it, but they didn't want to get it because they weren't technically supposed to get it and they didn't want to take it from someone else. And other people saying, we got to get as many arms vaccinated as possible. If you had a code to get vaccinated, get vaccinated. Um, and I'm just so curious what you think. I think that 
that I'm much more on the space of like, let's get as many people vaccinated as quickly as, as possible. Um, and I think for me, a big piece of that is that the sort of the transmission of the virus appears to be so much lower uh, as a result of vaccination. So, you know, there is a lot of value to vaccinating people, even if they themselves are not likely to be spreaders now, or sorry, are not likely to get, to get sick. Um, now, it is also true that basically more over 95% of the deaths in from COVID have been in people over 50. And so, you know, the argument for kind of vaccinating people in their 20s and 30s uh, from a from a kind of illness standpoint is fairly low. So, you know, I think that there's a kind of tension there. I certainly think making sure we are using every dose as quickly as possible is kind of num- number one. And so, you know, people are like, well, I'm going to go to Walgreens and if they have any doses to throw away at the end of the day, like I want to, I want to get them. Yeah. You know, I, I think it's in some ways it's good that people are doing that. So those doses are not thrown away. It's really For bad sure. if they throw away doses. And, and if they have know, the ability to wait in, like, I think there's the other part of it. Of many people don't have the capacity to wait in those lines or do that due diligence, or they do have families at home and they're not, young and free. like <laughs> So, um, so for those people, like, that's what I was wondering is, can, you know, fine. If you can wait online for six hours and the off chance that there's an extra vaccine, Godspeed. But, um, I was curious about it because people think about it a lot. Yeah. I mean, I think we're going to, you know, the, for me, there's kind of like right now we're in this space where there are, there are a lot of unvaccinated people who are desperate to be vaccinated. Right. And who were like kind of out waiting in the thing, finding the, the tree, which is the volunteer. How do I get here? You know, which of these Walgreens is the best one to go to? Or should I go to the CBS? Can I wait outside? There's a bunch of people doing that now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In three, you know, in three weeks, I don't think that that is going to be a big issue because I mean, already like Alaska said, everyone over 16 can be vaccinated. Other places are going in that direction. Right. We're going to start seeing expansions and then, you know, there'll be two. The first time they expand to people over 30, there'll be three days of kind of like all the people over 30 who are desperate to get vaccinated, you know, smashing into the Internet. And then at some point, not too distant from now, we're going to start with the second problem, which is people not wanting to be vaccinated and figuring out how we're going to address resistance. Especially because in communities where historically there hasn't been much trust in the healthcare system there's also high rates of COVID. So yeah. And I think we need to, my view is like, we need to do better. We we need to do better at convincing those groups. We need to do better at making it easy Um, and sort of acknowledging that, you know, somebody told me, I think it's probably right. We're kind of like a third, a third, a third on people, like a third of people are desperate to get the vaccine. A third of people are very opposed to getting the vaccine and and are going to be hard to convince. And there are a third of people who like, probably if you make it easy, they'd be willing to do it but they're not going to like kill themselves to get an appointment. Those yeah. middle third are really important. Uh, and figuring out, you know, what do we need to do to get that group in? That's going to be the challenge. Uh, and is it, you know, texting them when they're near CVS and saying, hey, you know, by the way, CVS has got some, you know, you could come in right now and get a vaccine. Like, what, you know, what exactly is it going to, is it going to take? I think we need to make some progress there. You know, that reminds me of something that you said about vaccines and kids, which was just like, I'm not going to convince people who were never going to say, I'll do this. I'm not going to (laughs) take, that's not where I'm going to focus my energy, but you are, you know, for people who are on the fence or for whom it's just too difficult. That's where we have to put all of our energy. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's like the middle, it's this like middle sort of the, the resistant, but not very resistant or the, yeah, the group. Yeah. That's the group we need to focus on. Here there were texts going around. I'm sure they're still going around kind of with codes to get vaccinated and the process. And then there was an article written about um, how those codes were meant for really high risk um, black and brown families in low income communities specifically. But the job of the um, text code was such a, you know, you had to sit for hours, like people were spending their whole day online, clicking dates and trying to find moments. And I was so frustrated that that was the great idea of the, not to knock whosoever idea it was, but I think it was possibly the governor's. Possibly somebody in the government, yes. (laughs) But this idea, I was like, that is so not, for some reason my blood was boiling because I was like, that's that code, that little access code text. And then, it, you know, many refreshes on a screen and then a location that's a drive and then a line is so tone deaf. Right. Or, no, it's like a totally crazy idea that somehow that's the, that's the system that you should be using for people. I don't know. Yeah. So one other thing, I wanted to ask you what you've heard about pregnant women and, and COVID vaccines. Yeah. I mean, so I think, you know, this is, um, this is in some ways a very hard, hard discussion because of course the trials did not include pregnant women. Um, but you know, I think most of what's come out lately is very, is sort of very reassuring. So, you know, because a lot of health pregnant healthcare workers have been vaccinated, we're starting to see some outcomes there and, and, you know, they're, they're suggesting that the vaccine is safe for, for pregnant women, that the rates of complications are, you know, the rates of, of kind of pregnancy complications are basically similar to the, to the base rate that so far looks quite good. Um, and the Johnson and Johnson guys are going to, are starting, and I think Pfizer has done this as well, are sort of starting to enroll pregnant women in, in trials, um, like safety trials, the same way they're doing kids. So we will know more sort of precisely about that, but I think that the, the data we have so far looks good. And of course, I always like to note, you know, that also getting COVID is bad if you're pregnant. Um, and so we probably want to be cautious about, I mean, there's sometimes a worry of like, well, like, why would I risk it? It's like, well, you know, because COVID is bad. So right, it's, you don't it's want to get COVID while you're pregnant. Because you don't want to get the coronavirus. Yet. And so um, I think that's, that's the point. And is it similar to breastfeeding or, or, or much less of a controversial thought? I think with breastfeeding, like if anything, people's, the discussion is focused on the other dimension, like basically, should I be actively trying to get this? Because we know that antibodies pass through breast milk and COVID antibody, you know, antibodies to this pass through breast milk. And I think that, so, so I think there's been much less of a kind of safety concern and more onto this other, this other idea that maybe it would be protective. Although I think that's also not totally clear. It has been so, so how can people find you when they're thinking like, I don't know what the right answer is. I see so many different people giving me different opinions. What is a reasonable way to think about this? How do they find you? <laughs> they can find me. I think the best place to find me is my Substack, um, which is called Parent Data, which is like my email newsletter where I talk about a lot of these issues. And I'm going to put that, I'll put a link in the show notes to that because it's so helpful. And... You wrote another book? I did. 
<laughs> I said out in August. That's so exciting for everybody. What we can talk about that book, but what's the what's the general gist? It's called The Family Firm, um, and it is uh, kind of about old. So my last book was was sort of about little little kids, you know, baby like birth to three. And this is sort of largely about older kids, but kind of stepping back and and using that as a frame to think about kind of how to organize your life to make decisions that you're that you're happy with in your in your family and sort of trying to provide people not only some pieces of data but also some decision tools so they're prepped for decisions that come up that that maybe they weren't expecting because I think that's for me that's a that's been a big piece of this phase of parenting even putting COVID aside but particularly with COVID. It's so wonderful and it's so unusual to have um, someone willing to help people make those decisions. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think as my kids have aged, I have sort of increasingly realized that you can only help people with how they can make the decisions and yes. it's hard to help them actually with what the decision should be. So, Yes, for sure. For sure. Well said. And but that is mostly my work. <laughs> exactly. Realizing that and then... And then um, trying to like ad- adapt to it, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's the same thing as parents. We have to do the same thing. So there you go. Exactly. We can only hope to teach our kids to make how to make decisions. We can only hope. 